0: Hey lovelies, before we get started, I wanted to let you know that the coziest scarf is a limited edition item. I haven't decided exactly when I'm gonna take it away. I'm thinking probably the end of February. And I wanted to let you know if you wanted to get it for yourself or for someone who's important to you before then, Well, you should do it before then because after that it won't be an option so it is part of the impact winter capsule which includes the coziest scarf and the most perfect pleated skirt Uh, the most perfect pleated skirt i think is going to become a staple piece of the collection so don't stress about that one but for the coziest scarf i really did it because during the time i guess I, i needed to do something with my hands i needed to be creating something i needed to be making something so I did, I was, I, and I still am hand knitting these beautiful scarves that are made from really soft, cozy yarn that make a really fantastic gift. They come in three colors, you can see them at impactfashionnyc.com. They are a great gift and they will be gone by March for sure. So just a heads up, enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rivki and on today's show, I talk with a lifestyle blogger about the two divorces that shaped her life. She shares what her job in facial aesthetics taught her about the way we see ourselves, difficult time when her son went to live with his dad, and how she cultivates confidence. Adel Beanie does not hold back. What you see with her is exactly what you get, and honestly, I find that to be quite refreshing. Her blog, Life's Looking Good, may seem at first glance to be just about pretty things, and on some level it is, but her goals with it are to open up conversations, and no one is more of an open
1: book than Adel. You know, many people think that I was like a rambunctious, loud, kind of sassy kid, but actually I probably was when I was a little bit older, but I think I was more of a kid that just did the right thing. I was a little precocious in that I I was always kind of spoke my mind, but actually I was like a rule follower and very, you know, I was gentle. <laughs> <laughs> I can Nothing like that. my adult version.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I can see, no, but I think that you do have this gentle innerness, I guess you could say. So where, what was your family like? Where'd you grow up?
1: Oh my goodness. Okay, so I grew up in Morristown, New Jersey. My family's Chabad, five children. I'm the second youngest and my, they were all very, very loud we're a very vocal family, even from like instrument, like my my parents both play guitar and bass. We sing, we're all very expressive and also very funny. We're a comedic family. So it was very hard to be heard to the point where like, I at some point needed speech therapy because I developed nodules on my vocal cords from screaming so much in my own house that I actually had a hoarse voice for about two years. And there's still some residual, that's why I have a hoarse voice now actually.
0: That's, that's so interesting. I never even thought of that as like a thing that could happen. So a lot of people know you as Adel from Life's Looking Good. And I want to, I want to talk about how that got started. But like, I'm curious, what made you decide to, you know, to start the blog and, you know, your thought process with it?
1: So, um, I had done a million things in my lifetime. I'm like a cat, I always landed on my feet and tried new things and different careers. In 2015, I officially opened um, Life's Looking Good. Um, and it was, I was doing floral and event design. And um, that was after doing, I was a professional makeup artist. A lot of people don't know that about me. Um, I worked in retail, like I did a bunch of stuff, but I knew ultimately that I wanted to work for myself and I knew I wanted to do something in the creative space. So um, in 2015, I started in floral and event design. I had no event design experience and I also didn't have any floral experience. It was kind of just ironic that I chose it, but I loved playing with flowers so much. Um, I taught myself how to do that and then ended up just doing a bit just getting saying yes to bigger projects, yes to bigger events, um, and ended up doing a full fledged almost just like all um, event design and big, big parties, didn't look dinner parties, but I got to do some really cool things and it ramped up quickly. And then, as I, um, my second marriage was coming to an end, it was going to be impossible to be able to pull the hours that I was doing as a florist because. I had to get up at two in the morning, three in the morning, four in the morning, and I had to leave my kids at home. So without um, having a partner at home, it was gonna become impossible. It was just too hard as well as there wasn't, events is not steady income, it's seasonal, right? Right. So um, I ended up having to shut my doors of that chapter of life's looking good. And I took a job in aesthetics because the money is good, Actually, I should define what aesthetics is because a lot of you, I say that and people are like, okay, what does that mean? That
0: was going to be my next question.
1: Yeah. So um, aesthetics for me was in the non surgical beauty space. So I was working with either like skin lasers for helping you resurface skin or dealing with acne scarring, stretch mark, things like that. Then I moved into other kind of devices. Everyone's very familiar with cool sculpting. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Freeze the fat.
0: Yeah. Is that like the weird thing that you see on like the Today Show sometimes where like something turns into like the thing
1: that is like dry ice? It's like a machine. Yeah. It, like, straps you. you, gets your fat cold, and so I did that for a while, and then I ended up in facial aesthetics, which is, like, no to- – it's, like, the holy grail of of our space. Um, and I was working with a specific kind of suture or string that gives you a non-surgical facelift. What does that mean? So, it's, like, a, a, a very specific kind of string made of a chemical uh, – not a chemical. It's, like, a – it would be – it was, like, a filler, but in okay. the, in – So like a filler um, substance, but turned into a string and it had tiny little hooks. Sounds so gory, but it really isn't. And it goes underneath the surface of your skin in your mid face, like so almost from your smile lines all the way up to your ears. And it pulls it and then you tack it and then it's underneath your skin so you can't see it, but it's pulling up your skin without surgery. That is fascinating. How long does something Mm -hmm. like that last? It lasts about 18 months. That's a long time. Yeah, I think so. And it's much less than getting a facelift. And there's virtually no downtime, a couple days of redness, soreness, and swelling. So I ended up doing from body all the way to face in the not, my specialty was non-surgical. Right.
0: So what you're like, even though that hook fish line thing that you just described is underneath the skin, that's considered non-surgical.
1: It's non, it's minimally invasive. So from massively invasive, like where you slice your skin or your face, this is considered minimally invasive because there's actually no cutting.
0: Okay, so- Like a needle.
1: Right, okay,
0: Okay, that makes sense to me. And that is, I would like to Google that now and see what that actually is. But um, what, at what point, like what year was this when you were doing these, you know, facial aesthetics and those kinds of things?
1: So it was, let's see, uh, the last, I would say four well, no, because I'd last, year. I would say like the last three years, Okay, not including this past year.
0: Right. So, you know, it sounds like you had this massive metamorphosis that happened with your personal life, with your marriage falling apart. And then also, you know, deciding that that didn't work, that life, that the lifestyle that you had running the business doesn't really work as a, a single mom. What was that? What was that time period like for you?
1: It was extremely challenging for so many different reasons. One, I felt like I had taken a huge step back in my career from working for myself. I felt in a lot of ways like I failed um, when I started my business because I ramped it up and I felt like that was going to be my future. Um, So I would say the overriding emotion was that I felt disappointed in myself. um, And I just felt like a sellout. Cause I went from the most creative thing that I could be doing, which was floral and designing people's events and creating a mood, which is what I love to do, into like essentially pharmaceuticals, which is the most I have to be careful here, because as long as I go into like my own feelings about it, and I don't want to offend people, but I felt like pharmaceuticals was the most soulless sellout thing I could have done. The money is good, but essentially I'm working with doctors and trying to like hawk product that even if it works, I'm just like the overall thing is like, you're making women kind of feel bad about themselves. I mean, even if you're offering a solution, you're also really bringing them a problem.
0: Right. It's a, it's an interesting spot to be in.
1: Yeah. So I just felt, I knew it was a means to an end. I knew how to put food on the table. I knew it was like I was honing a skill. And in fact. I'm so, so, so happy I did that, because A, I learned a lot about female psychology and what how to sell to females, which I think is was such an important thing. I also learned how to deal with medical professionals, which is the opposite end of the spectrum. They're notoriously difficult and easy to sell to, both because they know everything and they also know nothing at the same time, because doctors know a lot about medical, but they don't know anything about running a business. Many don't. So I got to learn about women, in a lot of ways. And I got to learn about medical professionals, but all across the board, it was really just honing a skill, which is really selling.
0: What would you say is something that you noticed that, you know, that most, particularly in the field that you were in, in this like facial cosmetic procedures, what were, what were some of the ways that most women approached issues like that? Well, what was something that you learned about how women approach the way that we look through the work that you
1: were doing? Well, the number one thing that's funny about women is when you ask them what they'd like to change about their face, or what they are unhappy about, about their face, because you're never, we're trained, you're never supposed to tell somebody, right? You're supposed to always approach the woman, why don't you show me on your face what you're unhappy with? So you're not calling it out, they are. And 10 out of 10 times, women will take their hands to their forehead or cheeks and lift it. They're like, I want it lifted. Everything's sagging. So it's just, it's interesting to me that unanimously across every age, like race demographic, women want their faces pulled tighter, which I find so interesting. And the the other second thing is exactly in that same um, coin, which is that you, I learned to be very difficult, uh, sorry, I learned to be very discerning in the way I spoke to women about beauty and that it has to be approached really gently and that I would, you always ask the woman first, and I'd never use words like um, saggy or um, fat, like we put, you put different words on it because it's just too aggressive. Um, and I think that was, it was beneficial for me because ultimately in the space that I'm in, right, I'm in aesthetics now, maybe not necessarily with faces, But you have to approach all things in aesthetics across the board with humans very gently, even with their homes, even with their spaces, their face, their body, they're nervous about it. So it's kid gloves, really. Yeah, I have to be very gentle.
0: Yeah, it's good life advice in general. Yeah, yeah. Was there something that you learned about the way that you related to the way you looked through doing that? Did that change (sighs) the way that you looked at your own face
1: or body? I wanna say that like, it helped me really you know, become very evolved, but I would say the opposite happened. I became very fixated on the way I looked, and now I have a very low threshold for imperfection. Unfortunately, because I worked with surgeons and doctors and dermatologists every day, and what we were doing is identifying problems and trying to recreate youth, trying to slow down, I call it slow down the freight train, And also now I feel like I've been given this arsenal of tools and knowledge about beauty. So I'm like, oh, well, now I know. Now I know how to slow down the freight train. I know what's available to me. But I also believe that if it exists, people should know about it. And I'd like to educate them and I'd like to educate them gently. I haven't touched so much upon it in my brand this year, because I feel like people were trying to basically just like tread water and survive and starting to get go down a wrinkle rabbit hole was just like not the move. But in the future, I will be tackling more about beauty, but with the view to give people information about what's out there if they're interested in it.
0: Yeah, I think that there's a lot of back and forth around, you know, if you truly loved yourself, you would never get a facelift, you would never do Botox, you would never do those things. And while I don't think it's something that I would ever do I don't know I would just be too scared to touch my face. Um, I feel if there's something that makes you feel better about yourself, then I don't think that there's anything wrong with with you know doing the procedure, getting the filler, or doing you know whatever it
1: is that makes you feel a little bit more confident when you look in the mirror. You know I agree, and also making sure that it's for you, not for a spouse or a husband or a friend, or making sure that if you're doing these things, it's really for you.
0: Exactly. Like if, if it's something that you feel that you want to do, then by all means, go for it. With all this work that you were doing in, in aesthetics and in the way that people look, um, I, I, I had no idea that you even did any of that just from what Life's Looking Good is now, which is yep. really just this happy, fun corner of the internet that is always just pretty and beautiful and escapist. And I, and I love it so much. What, was, what made you decide to, to bring the brand back? not so much as a floral design company, but as a little corner of the internet.
1: I brought the brand back as um, five categories. Refine, reflect, um, dwell, gather, wander. So how we live, how we gather, discovering the world, wander, because that was a big part of my life. And um, refine is the beauty. So actually there are five categories that I brought back to my little happy corner. I love that you describe it as that. Um, The reason that I brought it back was because I was searching for, I knew pretty early on into my, um, you know, medical aesthetics career that that wasn't going to be my future, Um, but it was a means to an end. And then when COVID hit, my company got sold in April and we were all effectively out of jobs. Um, But I had already been ramping up Life's Looking Good again. I was starting to put more content up. I was starting to do a lot. I actually led really with a lot of beauty stuff, um, you might not have been following me then. So because I was in aesthetics and I was coming back to my business and starting to beef up my content and sh- you know have more of an online presence again, I led with the beauty stuff because that was what was the most current and um, I was the most knowledgeable on. Slowly, as COVID started to get darker and things started to become just a bit more uncertain, it was becoming clear to me that there was going to be a need for people to just have joy, that everyone was looking around their homes, seeing that they really wanted to make improvements. They were not, everybody was kind of nesting in a way. And I was like, I'm going to help them nest. I'm going to, I'm going to show them the way because- a lot of people were nesting and frustrated with their home and living environments. A lot of people had to make changes to their home environments because they needed to put desks and clear things out. And their kids were home, and all of a sudden, even basic functionality wasn't available because people were like, "Where do I even? How do I even set up a desk? What is it, you know how?" Does, so, I started to put forward more content about like how to do at home learning, how to create some space, how to clear. And then, so from there, it sort of organically, I guess the people sort of dictated where my content was going and what the need was. I was listen- listening to the needs.
0: Yeah, I, that's how I found you. I found you during the home decor office staging aspect of, of all the yeah. things. You, at the beginning of COVID, you have this set, you know, not a, a second that we've mentioned in this conversation, major transition where you are, where you end up out of a job and, you know, not too long ago you had, um, you, you know, you described this feeling of failure at the end of your marriage and then how that led into a career. And then you had this other big disappointment that happens um, with, you know, as so many people did, ending up out of work at the beginning of this pandemic. Was there a difference between those two times, you know, approaching it the second time around? Was there a difference between this transition and the previous one that you described?
1: Yeah. Well, for starters, I didn't feel like it was something that I did wrong. I actually was at the top of my game. I had won um, 2019 rep of the year for my company. So I'd like to done the most sales in the company. Yeah, I'm gonna throw that down. Good for um, you. So I, I felt like I was at the top of my game. So I felt like I was not a fault of my own. I was at actually the top of my career. Um, and I also felt really ready for it. There are times that things happen to you and the universe throws you into situations but you're actually prepared and this was one of the times where i really felt like everything that i'd done up until now led me to this moment i understood the needs of people i had a wealth of knowledge around beauty and aesthetics i had a wealth of knowledge around setting up a home because i had just done it and moving and space efficiency so i was like this is just a sign and i need to use all the experience and the knowledge that i have and do something new so i didn't feel scared i felt prepared
0: yeah, uh, that and that can sometimes make the biggest difference. I wanna, yeah. I wanna move, like, just pivot a little bit slightly. One of the things sure. that you've spoken about um, is the living arrangements that your son has, um, and that is that for. Correct me if I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna butcher this. Just you, you start. T- tell me what that was like. Um, so I think that this could help a lot of, um, a lot of divorced moms, uh, you know, work work out how things can be best yeah. for their kids.
1: Absolutely. So I have an unconventional living situation with one of my children. So I have two, um, divorces, two children. So my son, Jacob, his dad and stepmom, they moved around a little bit. When he first left me, they were living in Chicago. Now they live in Miami. Um, and I have a second daughter, Lila, with her and her dad, uh, lives here. So I share custody 50 50 of my daughter, Lila, and my son lives in Miami with his dad full time, except for when he has school breaks, um, that decision came about because I was going through my second divorce and I moved into a small apartment out of my family home. Um, and he was sharing a room with his sister and I was overwhelmed. I was very lost. I was very confused. I was, uh, living. I was not living very true to myself. I was certainly acting out and just having a lot of irresponsible behavior. Um, I should note too, I'm only 36. So I had my son uh, right a few days after I turned 20. So I, I am a young mom. So I sometimes like t- do young mom stuff, right? And that's okay. Um, so we made the decision. It was just becoming very clear that him living with me was very difficult for him, for me, he needed a bit more of a stable environment. And so we all made the decision, both myself, my son, and my um, ex-husband, for him to go live in, um, with his dad and stepmom because they had um, a much more stable family living situation. And um, and I was still figuring out my career and what I was doing and in, like all of that stuff. So he went to live with his dad, which was really one of the hardest decisions of my adult life, my young adult life, I should say, but ultimately ended up being a really, really good decision for him and for all of us, really. So now I see my son uh, in the summertime and over school breaks and um, whenever there's a vacation, if I can.
0: So this is something that, first of all, really, I, I give you so much credit for recognizing where your limitations are at and and prioritizing your kid above all else I think that there's so many people that get stuck I have no experience with this so I'm a little bit like right talking from nowhere um not a little bit I'm 100% talking from nowhere but um (laughs) but I you know you you see too much how people end up prioritizing their own egos over the well-being of their kids and the fact that you didn't do that I think hats off to you truly what was you know what was it what were you what was it like recognizing that you were not in the best place for your son to be living with you? Was that a slow process? Was it something that just happened?
1: That's a great question. Um, it was definitely not instant. I mean, I know like moving into an apartment with two kids, my son had already been through one divorce with me, right? So my daughter was having a different experience. Um, one, her dad was living locally. So I was very close in proximity to her our family home where she was born. And also she was very young. My son was not young at the time. He was 11. Yeah. Like 11, 12, 11 and a half. Yeah. So he had already lived through one divorce. He was now in another, this was moving around a lot and i just think it took it's toll on him and he always did his best to just make me feel like it was okay and actually that's really when i realized that was a problem because a lot of times with divorce um, children of divorce end up like placating their parents and trying to make everything seem okay and and be tough but actually he really was just 11 and a half and he needed to be a kid so he didn't have to be consoling his mom or seeing his mom struggle or go through it it's not that Children shouldn't see their parents struggle because I absolutely think it's OK. And in fact, they should. But I just knew that it was time for him to really get a break. And being in like an environment where his dad wasn't like having to hustle as much as me, and there was a mom who was home and could make lunches and do all that stuff would just be healthier for him. And ultimately, it was. Um, but yeah, of course, it was really, really, really tough. Um, I forget people say this know, you're so, you know, that was so great that you did that. At the time, it didn't feel like a choice even. It just was so clear to me that that was the move. And he wanted to also, he was expressing to me, I want to live with my dad. He also, up until this time, hadn't really spent a lot of time with his dad. So it was time also for him to have like a strong male influence in his life. And that I could recognize too.
0: Yeah, that's also in- incredibly important. And when you're not local to your ex, that makes things that yep. much more difficult. Mm hmm. Yeah, that I mean, and I think that also the fact that you're so open about these kinds of not topics, but just experiences, you know, this messiness is all part of, you know, life might be looking good, but this is part of what life is also.
1: Right. And, uh,
0: was it important to you to be to be open? Or does
1: that just come naturally to you? It's important, and it comes naturally. Um, there was i didn't start my brand with a lot of this stuff i started with a lot of frilly pretty things i started introducing this a little bit more in because it's so important because instagram will make you feel very alienated and isolated and it's a tough, tough place to be. Instagram is like high school all over again, except Uh, much prettier digital images. You feel like you're on the outside looking in, you feel like everybody's friends, but you're not. You feel like everybody's skinny, pretty, cool with it, has their shit together and doing really well. And you're not, it's just like, it's high school all over again. So I was thinking to myself, what can I do to, If I'm not being honest with people, if I'm just showing up and doing pretty things, then I'm not doing anyone a favor and I'm part of the problem, not part of the solution. And I wanted very much my brand to be part of the solution, not the problem. I mean, telling people how to perfect their homes and perfect their faces and their skin, um, yeah, it's okay to a point. You'll, You'll definitely grab people's attention, but how ultimately do you make them feel? You make people, it's not inspiring to show up all the time and be great and look great and have your shit together. It's inspiring to people if you actually have seen very dark times and experienced dark things and messed up a lot and you show up anyway, that's inspiring to people.
0: Yeah, so true. What do you do specifically to make your space an inspiring one?
1: Well, I try. so I try and give people tangible real life solutions for like everything I talk about. So if we're talking about um, setting beautiful tables, I'll try and find cheaper amazon versions of what i'm doing to make it attainable for everyone so it's not just you know the absolute most expensive table you could do if i'm talking about beauty i'm breaking down the real um what it should cost what it looks like does it really last does it really work like let's break down the efficacy so people are not wasting their money and when i'm talking about life experience i show up in a way that lets people know that even though things look like they're all perfect for me now which of course we know no one's life is perfect it doesn't come without struggle. It doesn't come without experiences. And, and, and at every po- any point in anyone's life, you're going to have ups and downs. And telling people about it and also getting to show up in a way where I'm so unapologetic about it I don't lean it like, oh yeah, you know, my, it's, it was this and it was that. I was like, yo I had a bad experience. My son had to go live with his dad and that's just what is. I don't make a story about it. I think that gives people permission to sort of be a little bit more unapologetic in their lives. And in that way, I feel like I get to make a difference.
0: 100%. And the fact that you are so unapologetic is I think what immediately <laughs> drew me to you. I was like, this girl knows who she is. She, she knows yeah. the space that she occupies in the world. Is there something specific that you do to be so at home in yourself? Is there something that you tell yourself or something that you've done over the years to make it, you know, it seems like it comes naturally to you to be unapologetic. Is that just how you are?
1: I was much more insecure when I was younger. I'm 36 now. I feel like as you get older, am I allowed to ask how old you are? I'm 26. Okay, well, at 26, a baby. nothing <laughs> felt confident to me. I was petrified. The world is scary at 26. I I think as you get older, so like if women are listening to this and they're like I'll never get there, when I was a younger woman, I didn't feel like I would. And I also heard that as you like in your 40s and 50s it's even better. Like you're you're just most confident. So one, I think it takes time, and two, my mother was so so instrumental in my self-confidence and in my ability to look at my mess-ups and not make it mean anything about me she really helped me she coached me through very hard times in a way that helped me develop myself and an understanding about just life versus making it about me and I think that that was so important and that's also why I'm almost like trying to be everybody's mom like I'm trying to this is the things that helped me and now I'm going to try and help you
0: I, I I completely get that. What were some of the things that your mom, that your mom told you when she was coaching you through those hard things? What were some of the, what, what was, what, what was some of your mom's
1: wisdom? Oh, my mom is so wise. Anyone that knows, like, I'm always quoting my mom, even in my blog posts. I think, you know, for starters, she let me see when she messed up. We talked about different, like nothing was taboo. I think a lot of moms, it's very hard to go to them with, you know, tough stuff, especially, um, with some of my divorces and some of the more intimate details about why the divorces were happening and things like that. I was able to come to her. She, she left a space open for that. And we just talked about really just like the human condition, right? We're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes it's really not about the mistakes, it's just how you move through them, how you look at them. And just you're, one of the big things, I actually just posted about this yesterday, is that like your feelings are not a testament for reality. So doing a gut check, like a, a feeling check about how something's happening and how you're observing it is actually could have nothing to do with reality. When you really get clear about that. So I could say, right? I have two failed marriages. My One of my kids doesn't live with me. I lost my job, my business. I could go down that rabbit hole, right? That's my, that could be my feelings about it. That's not the reality. The reality is that I'm a young person who is navigating a different, difficult world. I got married very young. I made choices when I didn't yet have the wisdom or the knowledge and through all of these things, I learned amazing things about myself. Yeah, there was a lot of pain, but there was also a lot of growth. And so this was my journey. And and obviously, it was here to teach me a lot of things. And maybe with the view that I could ultimately help others. So it's just how you spin it. But your feelings are often not reality. Yeah. It's just a feeling. I,
0: exactly. And it's sometimes so hard to separate the, you know, sometimes our feelings feel like They're real. And and they are real. They're valid. All emotions and feelings are valid. But that doesn't mean that you need to act on those feelings. And that doesn't mean, you know, that you need to go down that
1: rabbit hole immediately. Right. And it also means like, even if you're feeling the thing, and it's, it's very real for how you're feeling it, it could also just not mean anything, right? So you could feel something, but that actually is meaningless. It's just like, I'm feeling this thing, but I don't have to make it mean anything about what my life is or if I'm good or bad or this or that, right?
0: Right. I can just feel this and move on. Yeah. When you were going through divorce number 2, was the was the feeling around that like you you know if you were 20 when you had your son, I'm going to assume that you yeah. were married at that point and that mm-hmm. you were, you know, you know 19 or whatever when you when you got married and that's obviously you're a very different person at 19 than you are at 36 whether or not you're doing that with the same partner. Did the, two, did the two marriages and subsequent divorces, did they feel different? Was there, like, was, was it the same lessons
1: learned over? No, they were very different marriages. I mean, my first one was just so young. So I can't even really judge, I don't even judge myself around any of the things for that because I felt like we were just too young to get married. We were, our families were both orthodox. We were dating in secret um, in Brooklyn. And our parents basically found out and ultimately gave us an ultimatum, like get married or break up. And when you're 17, 18, 19, you think you must get married, that your love is eternal, you know, Romeo and Juliet. So we got married instead of breaking up. So it was a lot of family and community pressure, um, but still no regrets. Um, He was a wonderful man and is a wonderful dad. Ultimately for that, we were just too young, you know? And, right. and so th- the next marriage was eight years later. I'd gone home. I lived with my parents. I had like so many different jobs and tried a bunch of things. And I felt like I pendulum swung. So what my first husband was like, I was like, I'm going to go completely different. He was European. He was British. He had an accent. It was exotic. He was loud and funny and precocious and lit up a room. Unfortunately... I am also loud and precocious and want all the attention in the room. So that was a recipe for disaster. We ultimately were very similar. Um and that was very tricky.
0: This is very with tricky. your second husband.
1: Yeah, the second husband. But that that marriage presented different problems and different struggles. Just also we were older and um and also now I came with another child, right? Like a step uh, you know. Right. So there was also navigating a blended family. Yeah. So
0: all all of that can get really tricky. It sounds like, I mean, not, not passing judgment in any way, but the, you know, as we grow older, our problems grow older too. And yep. in a way that's almost a sign of growth that, you know, mm-hmm. if you're having, if you're having the same problems that you were having at 19 as you, you know, in your twenties and thirties and, and throughout, then you're kind of just getting stuck in this loop.
1: Yeah. A thousand percent. And I, I think I didn't, I had not grown enough yet still. I still consider myself somewhat of a late bloomer. I don't really feel like I grew into myself until the last two years, maybe. Hey, better late than never. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. If you're feeling like I'm 30, I'm 31, I'm 32, I haven't really grown up yet, because I was really feeling like that. I didn't feel very grown up. I felt like I was still very much a small person in a big world. It just might have not happened for you yet. The Hindus believe that, Women don't come into full maturity until they're 30, after 35. So at 36, you turn one. And I really believe I came into myself at 36.
0: That's actually fascinating. I did not, I did not even know about that. Can I ask
1: if you still consider yourself orthodox? No. No? No. No, I will always be so, I love, love, love being born and raised Chabad and Lubavitch. I just think it's such a fun, if you're going to be born into orthodoxy, I would say it's one of the more fun, lively ones yeah. <laughs> in communities. Um, just, I was given so much freedom as far as like freedom of expression. I think my Chabad leaves a lot of room for freedom of expression, maybe more so than some other sects of orthodoxy, but I don't identify as orthodox anymore. I don't um, observe like Shabbos and I don't keep kosher or anything like that. Okay. That
0: works. Whatever, yeah. whatever works for you. Just out of curiosity, with yeah. um, with life's looking good. What are you hoping to accomplish with the work that you're doing now? What are you? What do you want to be putting out into the world?
1: Um. So my focus is always on relatable content with a view to entertain, educate, or um, bring value in some way. I'd like to always continue to do that, even if it's free. Um, and I would like to, one of my goals um, starting this year is I wanna have a coffee table book that's gonna help people to either with just styling and design tips for very normal homes. There are a million coffee table books that have um, design uh, on, in homes that 99% of us will never live in. And I wanna do something practical for the masses, truly for the masses. Um, and um, ultimately I'd like to have my own home decor line sign and tabletop. up I want that book already <laughs> I, want I know that book. it's gonna be good but it's gonna take time of course, all good books do. books do
0: it's tr- all all anything good takes time. It's, it's got to ferment for a while. It's got to, it's got to mix up. It's got to do all those things. I agree. This conversation, I feel like is a summary of all the reasons why I love you and why I love following you. Why I feel so fortunate that I've gotten to know you a little bit over the past little bit, because I think that it takes a really in tuned and special person to be able to jump from, you know, let's make a coffee table book to here's why my marriages didn't work out to these are the ways that you can grow in your 30s. And I I'm here for it. And I'm, and I'm really just so grateful that you took the time to speak with me today. If somebody Thank wants you. to learn more about you, Adel, where can they go?
1: So I have a blog, lifeslookinggood.com. And there's only one G, the looking and good chair, one G, I have to tell people that. And on Instagram, I'm life's looking good. That's
0: awesome. Last thing that I want to ask you is what I ask everyone who comes onto the show. And that is to you, Adel, what does it mean to make an impact?
1: <sighs> I think that... Making an impact is taking a look at your life, if you are a public figure, or if you're someone in a community, or even your friendships, or even your marriage. From macro to micro, taking a look at um, whether your influence is big or large, and and really, really being intentional about how you're making people feel.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on today, Adel. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Adel, her links are in the show notes there you'll also find links to the most perfect fitted skirt the coziest scarf and the most comfortable mask which by the way there are really only a few pieces left and i'm not restocking so get them now if you want them access all of that by swiping up on the cover art or going to impactfashionnyc.com to hear more episodes be sure to subscribe if you enjoyed this episode and want to help more people hear it leave a review or a quick rating they make my day the episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fedman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Ruf Gietzguitz, catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.